At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The countdown to the election. What lies ahead now for your money? We debate that today with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour today are Josh Brown, Steve Weiss, John Nigerian. Brenda Vingello is CIO of Sandhill Global Advisors. Anastasia Amoroso is head of cross-thematic strategy for J.P. Morgan Private Bank. Take a look at stocks now. Been down five of the past seven days. Been a little all over the map today. We're following stimulus headlines, of course. The latest on the virus, the election. It is all in the mix. So, Josh, are we just expecting now to be volatile right up to the election and then perhaps even beyond? I think that's fair. And what's interesting is that everyone already expects that. So if you look at one of the biggest records that's been broken this year, and this is a year full of superlatives and and broken records and things that have never happened before happening, Um, U.S. bond bond ETFs took in a trillion dollars, over a trillion dollars, all told, and $150 of that came in in the first nine months of this year. So that's a new record. Never had this much money. And when, when I say U.S. bond ETFs, I'm talking about basically money that's earning 1% or less because that's what the yields are. So why is that much money sitting in vehicles that are paying it below the rate of inflation? Why? So people say the VIX isn't high enough, um, people are complacent, more volatility. That's where you see that volatility bet being made. It may not show up in the price of Apple and Amazon, but it's showing up in the bond market, in bond ETFs. By the way, global bond ETFs are like two trillion. So we've had tons of money rushed to the sideline already. So I guess my point to you, Scott, is if everyone expects volatility, what happens when the election is behind us? And then that expectation goes away. That's a lot of money that I think comes back into the market. Some people are sniffing that out. Take a look at uh, 10-year Treasury yield um, on its way back toward 1%. As improbable as that might seem, it's literally happening. Approaching that 200-day moving average, the 30-year is already through that, that moving average. And when you look at emerging markets, when you look at the cyclical bounce back, there are people saying, I accept the fact that there will be election volatility in the next two weeks. But then I think we're going north. Okay, you are in many ways channeling Tom Lee and his commentary today as well. Steve Weiss, where Tom Lee says the more we churn, the greater the post-election rally. Given the fairly robust incoming economic data, he says, and the high levels of cash on the sidelines, to Josh's point as well, and given the high anxiety into elections, this surely seems to be a setup for a pretty big post-election rally. I'm not sure, Steve, if you saw Paul Tudor Jones this morning on Squawk Box. Here's how he sees the landscape. Let's listen to PTJ, and we can kick that around on the other side, too. 
at some point in the first quarter next year, you're going to have a big move to the upside from whatever level that might be uh, as people get cash from this first stimulus program and they deploy that in a variety of financial assets, which could be stocks and bonds. So it's going to be really tricky. I could easily see a situation where the market sells off into year end and then you have that typical beginning of the year rally that might ramp all the way through the, the end of the first, certainly into the mid part of the first quarter. All right, Steve, he says tricky. Um, so what is an investor to do in that kind of environment? Well, I think what an investor do is to stick with what's working in terms of the fundamentally driven stocks that have good valuation support. I was thinking today, what if what we saw with Peloton, where the analysts from Goldman came in and downgraded the stock, despite fundamentals that continued to do well? As you recall, I sold the stock yesterday. So what if instead of analysts chasing price targets higher and higher, we have Credit Suisse come out today and put a you know, 550 target on NVIDIA, Goldman tomorrow with 600. What if they've decided that game stops? I'm happy with a 500% gain. Since I recommended the stock, I don't want to be the last one to get out. We're getting close to a vaccine. People will be going back to work. So what if the analyst comes out tomorrow and says, I'm also downgrading Peloton? And then next day, somebody else, and they take their price target to 100. What happens then? Then we could see those stocks come down meaningfully, like Fastly. And maybe they don't want to wait for a Fastly and see it get crushed because fundamentals turn aside. So that's why I say go with what's fundamentally worked over a longer time period that's not dependent upon people working from anywhere, not dependent upon COVID continuing to plague us, which, by the way, should be a concern because cases are going so much higher everywhere in the U.S. We won't have shutdowns, but it will inform consumer behavior at some point. So look, so what Paul Tudor Jones said makes sense, but when he said we could go down and we'll go up, maybe we're running in place through the end of the first quarter. What Tom Lee says about churn, churn doesn't always lead to upside. It sometimes leads to downside. But I continue to come back. Markets go up 90% of the time. So staying invested is a good way to play it. Yeah. Um, Brenda, what about you on this issue of uh, heightened volatility, at least for the next 10 days? And then who knows afterwards, but it is tricky, as PTJ said, on how to figure to play this thing. I think it's tricky, but I think it's also such a fascinating situation because we've all been talking about this volatility to Josh's earlier point for a long time now. We've actually been talking about what we think is a worst case scenario of a contested election for a long time. And what the market hates more than anything is a negative surprise. So I think when the time comes, it's hard to imagine what could be a negative surprise at this point. But I think that combined with all the trillions of dollars in cash sitting on the sidelines, the, the money sitting in bond ETFs that, that Josh mentioned, um, as well as a potential for stimulus and also a, an announcement about a vaccine or therapy, we are you know, keeping our clients invested and not making any changes based on what we think is, is going to be uh, driven by an election outcome. And we think what we could see is that volatility may just may not be uh, quite as significant as I think everyone's anticipating it yeah, could be. We will see. Um, Doc, I'm going to get to you in a second, but I want to go to Anastasia first because the way that she's thinking about the market and moves that our viewers, all of you, may want to take a look at. Doc, play right into your options playbook, if you will. You're the guru. But Anastasia... 
How are you thinking about all this and maybe hedging out some of the risk? I think clients should be thinking about hedging out some of the risk because, as Brenda said, the volatility around the election is anticipated, but the volatility, that expected volatility, has also subsided. And the reality is the outcome is still not known. So think about just how not typical and how different this election is. You have 83 million people that have requested an absentee ballot. And that's 60%, by the way, of the turnout, the total voter turnout that we've seen in 2016. So I don't know how that's gonna go. You don't know how that's gonna go. You don't know what the issues might be that comes uh, that come up before counting all these different ballots. So the prudent thing for our clients to do who are concerned about the extended volatility around the election is to look to the option markets and hedge out some of that risk. Now, I will agree that this is not a call to get out of the markets. This is not the call to forget about the liquidity in the Fed, not at all, because we are at the start of what we think is a multi-year recovery process that's gonna extend into next year. So we do wanna be positioned for that, no doubt. It's just that we wanna take um, very cautious view on the next two weeks. And once that volatility resolves, which by the way, the longer dated options are telling us that it is likely to resolve in a few months time, then we are likely to see the market uh, trade much better from there. Okay, so Doc, that, that's you now. Sell some calls, says Anastasia, buy some put spreads, replace some stocks with options. Talk about that playbook. Well, um, and Scott, uh, that's what I've been doing for weeks already. Um, we thought that the volatility was way too high uh, into the election and through the election, you know, depending on how long it takes to count the ballots, Scott. So uh, it has come down dramatically already. Um, we've seen the near-term volatility, near-term futures, that is, Scott, come down from 34 to now, I think they were 20, uh, 29, 28, 2880 right now, the, the nearest-term future right now. That's a big drop, Scott. If you look at where we were, however, into the 2016 election, we were seeing the VIX at 1580, Scott. Again, half of where it is now. So uh, people, I guess, thought that they knew what was going to happen in 2016, and they didn't put as much uh, into what might happen after the election. And thus, uh, we had a 55% pop in the VIX the very night of the election, Scott. So this, what we're looking at right now, is a much higher volatility. I think that continues to come down, quite frankly, Scott, because I think uh, the future's up there at 28, 29, um, unless there's some catastrophe out there, are way too high into the election. Keeping in mind that the most recent election, you know, which is just four years ago, um, we were basically at 1580. So this is pricing in an awful lot of volatility, some of which I think is just overstated. I would be much more of a buyer in the 22 to 25 range, Scott, than I am here where it is right now. I think you profit from being a seller of vol at these levels. You know, Josh, it's interesting, this, this idea, as, as Steve Weiss said, of sort of stay with, with what's working. The housing story is working. The housing stocks, though, on good numbers again today on just this dramatic increase in prices, Housing stocks are down uh, across the board. Now, maybe your play, Invitation Homes, is bucking that trend. I'll look it up, and we'll show it on the screen right now. But as I look at, say, the, the marquee names in the housing space, for example, they're all getting shellacked today. What's up with that? Well, let's distinguish between two different um, housing data sets. One is existing sales, which does absolutely nothing for 
the home building stocks that you're referring to. And then the other is new home sales. And both are phenomenal, by the way, all year. It's been one of the easiest trends to both be aware of and make money from. Um, but without a doubt, what ends up happening is at a certain point, everyone who wants a house gets a house, right? Every sale that's supposed to happen happens. I don't think we're there yet, but I understand that there are people that are concerned with that. Like, how long can the housing market stay as hot as it's been? And how long can we have double digit comps? which are really like out of character for this, for this segment of the economy. How long can we have double-digit comps month after month of pending sales, for example, was the number we got today. So uh, the answer is not forever, but these are still cheap stocks. These are still companies paying dividends. These are still companies that have a secular tailwind for as far as the eye can see because of demography. I don't think anyone thinks Fed funds rates are going anywhere. I don't think anyone thinks all of a sudden mortgage rates are going to spike. 30, 40% for some reason. So as long as these things are in place, um, I would stay in this trade. And if they fade on a great great number, it's one day's worth of trading. It doesn't change anything. Yeah, but it's not like they, they haven't really performed as well as the underlying housing data would suggest that perhaps they should. Now, your play here is Invitation Homes, which is an entirely different story altogether. If you want to just quickly recap why you continue to be in that name as we do watch it rise today in the face of some pretty good carnage in some of these names. Allow me to paint a picture of the future for you in which large companies do not any longer expect all of their employees to show up in their office five days a week and in some cases ever. And as more and more work legitimately goes full-time forever virtual because it's a money saver for corporations in the end, um, what does that lead to? Well, it leads to people having a broader range, geographic range, of where they can live. They no longer have to worry about, am I 30 minutes from my office? That is a boon to the suburbs. However, as we, one thing we know about millennials and probably Gen Z is that they don't like being tied down to things and they don't like giving up flexibility. They like to rent as they use, buy as they use, et cetera, sharing economy. So invitation homes allows them to live in the suburbs but not have a mortgage and get stuck in any one place. They can rent a beautiful single family home, not live in an apartment, not a condo, a house. I think this is the future. Invitation Homes is the largest publicly traded pure play on that theme. They own 80,000 houses. And now, thanks to a massive private equity deal, they are back in the market to buy even more homes. And they're buying in high-end neighborhoods where the jobs are, where young people want to live. So this is not a play on building more houses. This is a play on the rental economy coming to suburban real estate thanks to the virtualization of work. I wonder, Doc, if we've hit the best of housing, right? If you have rates maybe starting to move up, mortgage apps are, are softening, I, I think is fair to say, at least activity around mortgage apps. Maybe the best has already been gotten in terms of the housing picture. I think it definitely takes a pause here, Scott, given the reaction that we've seen from holders of uh, Pulte, Lennar, uh, D.R. Horton from the holders of those, whether they're institutions or whether they're individuals. Um, I think they hit a pause, and I think you switch back over to uh, the suppliers of what goes into those homes. Look at those numbers out of Whirlpool, for instance, or any of the folks that basically make 
product that go into those homes that are being built and or the homes that are being rehabbed and so forth, Scott. But I don't think it's over, not with interest rates down here where they are. Now, if if interest rates, if the 10-year goes over one and goes to 120 or something, Scott, and the 30 follows suit, uh, different story. But if we stay below one for the 10-year, I think you're going to continue to see these stocks do well. But I think this is profit-taking right now after a very good performance. The, the other you know, thing that's obviously worked, if we want to continue this theme of sort of stay with what's working, Anastasia, is this idea of staying in technology. Uh, Weiss talked about it a little bit. And you're going to really get an indication next week about where this trade is and where it may be going. Because you get all of the, or at least many of the mega cap tech names, and you get a lot of the high flyers in the, in the, so, you know, the sort of Peloton category, if you will, of companies that are reporting their earnings uh, next week, which are considerable. Etsy and Twilio and Pinterest, Fastly, which pre-announced, as we said earlier, and disappointed. ServiceNow, Spotify, Shopify, you get Teladoc. Two. So what do you think people should do with tech here? Yeah, tech is definitely something you want to be long, longer term, but I want to decouple some things within tech. There's the big tech, there's the mega cap, the communication uh, services names, and then there's the mid cap growthy stuff that is experiencing um, such an upside because of secular trends. So when I think about that first category of big tech, those names have run a lot and for a good reason, because they've been the digital transformation story of the first half. But think about how much we fast forwarded the adoption of the cloud. Uh, a lot. You know, if you ask the Microsoft CEO, it's by a number of years in the last few months. So I think they've seen a lot of momentum and that momentum is going to subside just a little bit in the coming quarters. So that's issue number one for my we want to be lightening up on tech. Issue number two is valuations, which we all know. Issue number three is big tech regulation. And whether it's a Democratic sweep, whether it's a Republican sweep, there's reasons to be concerned about this. From a Democratic side, we can expect more on big tech regulation. And from the Republican side, that probably means that we go back to U.S.-China trade tensions. So I think the big tech names can very much get caught in the crosshairs. So that's why we like the names, but maybe lightening up a little bit on those makes sense. But on the flip side, some of those names that you mentioned are great secular growth stories that are growing their top line, bottom line at 30, 40, 50 percent. And their performance this year has been stunning. But I just think there's more to go. Yeah. Um, I mean, they have to they, they have to grow a lot to grow into their multiples, too. And that, that's one of the one of the issues, whether they can Scott, keep, on that, mega cap when tech. They keep that up. Yeah, Josh, go ahead. Real quick. So uh, my friend John Roke, very, very bright technician, worked for Soros for a number of years now at Wolf Research. He put something out over the weekend. I don't think most people in the market are even aware of this. We talk about Fang, mega cap tech. Every one of those stocks has peaked versus the S&P 500. So on a relative basis, if you start putting up some ratio charts and you look at Facebook into SPY, Apple into SPY, Amazon into SPY, what you'll see is that these stocks peaked relative to the market in July and August. Like they have not been making relative highs Mm -hmm. versus most other stocks for a long time now. Leadership has been passed already. So the FANG thing, the mega cap tech, it's already an old story. That's not what's powering the market higher recently. 
and it may not be for a while. These stocks might have already made their move. Next week, again, the reaction to earnings will tell us whether or not that's true. But be prepared for this new group of leadership stocks that isn't Apple and Amazon. Well, that's a great point. But then, Weiss, if that's the case, maybe that maybe that's why you've got some of the churn and chop that we have and we haven't been able to have this other other breakout. And if Josh is right and he you know, the data he cites uh, obviously is the data. If these mega cap tech names can't get another leg, the market overall is going to have somewhat of an issue, isn't it? Well, I think it could, but I, I don't buy into, uh, you know, past this prologue. Look, the stocks may have peaked. We've seen them peak in prior cycles. We've had this very conversation in prior cycles, and look where we are. You know, since we've been having these conversations, I say Amazon has doubled. I say Apple has tripled. You know, Google has been a laggard. So let's see what happens when they report earnings. That's all that matters. Uh, so we've seen others report earnings, and they've done well. They've blown out. Teradyne, there's no more old tech than Teradyne. It's a testing company. Guess what? They grew revenue and they grew earnings around 50%. So the stock was up 5% yesterday and it's done well off the bottom. So I think you have to look at how the performance goes. But let me just go back to housing. Let me make this very, very simple. Just draw a chart, a comparison chart between the XHB, which includes also some of the retailers, and the 10-year. That's all you need to know. It's directly correlated. Rates go up, housing goes down. So the only thing you're betting on are rates going to continue to rise. And my bet is that they're okay. not because you'll get a massive stimulus package and that'll create inflation and get more easing by the Fed. OK, let's go back to tech because that's where the conversation was. Uh, Brenda, Ed Yardeni note today talks about speed bumps for tech. Scant earnings, high valuations, a potential sign the market is getting frothy. Netflix, Logitech, he says earnings may signal that COVID-related tech spending surge has run its course. I mean, part of what got these stocks here in the first place, if that's running its course, what are we supposed to do? Yeah, I think it's a great point, and it's something that we've talked about. Oh, we'll come back to Brenda. Doc, you want to take that same question? Um, you were cutting out a little bit right as you were asking her that question. I'm, I'm talking sorry, about, Scott. I'm sorry, Doc. Um, well, I was referencing a, a note from Ed Yardeni today. Uh, since we were talking about where tech is and whether it's, you know, mega cap has sort of lost its leadership and where the space in general is going. Yardeni says some companies, I'm quoting now, some companies have scant earnings and high valuations, a potential sign the market's getting frothy. Netflix and Logitech earnings may signal that the COVID-related tech spending surge has run its course. And indeed it might, Scott. Um, we had Netgear come out with some earnings today as well, but that's more mature company like Logitech is. People, it, they pulled forward demand in both of those cases, Logitech with the peripherals, Netgear with, you know, sending up signal for Wi-Fi all over your house with routers and things like that. Um, I think that he, Yardeni is, of course, a very smart guy, and I think he's spot on with some of these, like Zoom, for instance. We all love it. It's become a verb. Um, it's, it's out there. We, you know, so many folks are shooting at them from Google to Microsoft Teams and so forth, but they continue to do well. However, I got to believe this is one of those that would make Yardeni's screens because of the amount of money that they actually bring to the bottom line, Scott, versus that valuation. 
So I think that he's right, and many of these mega cap techs have paused. They've hit that pause button. Apple's one of them. They have earnings on the 29th coming up next week. Um, we'll see whether or not the uh, pre-orders for the phone, which they may talk about mm -hmm. at that event, uh, without giving us direct numbers, just giving us perhaps um, some uh, indications, Scott. I think that's one that you definitely hold, um, even though they've hit the pause button. Yeah, it's hard to you know, overstate what's at stake next week, given all of these names and yeah. then the real countdown into the final days of the, the race for the White House, too. There's going to be a lot on investors' plates to have to figure out. Let's talk about some of the other moves you guys are making quickly before we go to break. We'll move off of tech. We'll talk about some cyclical names. Boeing. Brenda, what you bought? Yeah, so this is a name we've been watching for a long time. We've been waiting for the stock to bottom, and this is in keeping with our move uh, of adding more cyclical exposure here into more value-oriented names. But we think we're starting to see some green shoots develop here. So we have the European Aviation Commission that's come out and said the 737 MAX is safe. Um, and uh, we also have a backlog where it looks like uh, cancellations haven't been as significant as everybody thought. And we also have some trends in other parts of the world, like China, where we've seen domestic air travel almost fully recover. Um, so we're starting to see trends beginning to improve. Uh, we don't think we're going to hear any <laughs> enormous really good news here in the near term, but we're buying this as more of a long-term play here, recognizing uh, this is a duopoly company. It's not going anywhere. Um, and so uh, we think when we think about where to put new money now, uh, we're not putting it into tech. We're putting it into these more cyclically oriented companies where we think there could be a multi-year story developing Yeah, I just here. wonder if there's a, you know, a, a full appreciation of, of, of how dislocated air travel remains and how long the runway, pardon the pun, is going to be to get things back. Gary Kelly, Southwest CEO on this network, not that long ago today, you know, talking about the return to normal, quote, a long time from now. And when even presented, Steve, with this notion that you could get a 10-year wait for business travel to fully return to normal, it's not like he fought that off, fought it back, saying not true, can't see it. Who knows? It's, is, is it too hard to own airline stocks today? I think it's too, own to own air, too hard to own airline stocks, absolutely. I think it's too hard to own Boeing. Uh, Boeing, it, takes, it costs them billions and billions of dollars to build a plane, including the MAX. And they rely upon an ongoing new order book to pay that down so they can make money for shareholders. So now you've got a company that their entire customer base is upside down financially, and there are no new orders coming in. So could a trade up be a trade? Yes, but I wouldn't go near it. And let's forget, you know, management just hasn't equipped themselves well. That's not where I'd go for cyclical plays. Okay. I still think there are good cyclical plays when you take a look at NXP, right. which sells chips into autos. Okay. That's we'll cyclical. And, I'm sorry to interrupt you. We'll try and do that later. All right. I'm going to take a, a quick fine. break. First, though, an important story breaking within the last 30 minutes or so. Justice holding a news conference in Washington, D.C. this hour about its deal with Goldman Sachs. There's a live picture of the news conference taking place now. Goldman Sachs paying $3 billion in penalties related to the 1MDB scandal. Our Wilfred Frost reporting Goldman will also claw back tens of millions of dollars in compensation. It paid executives, including CEO David Solomon, former CEO Lloyd Blankfein. We're monitoring that, bringing you any new headlines that do cross as we watch this news conference take place in the nation's capital. Our thanks to Anastasia. 
Asia Amoroso as well. And when we come back, a big interview because Chipotle shares. They're falling today despite its earnings beat. What is ahead for the company? We have an exclusive interview with the CEO, Brian Nickel. It's up next. Don't want to miss that. And as we head to break, check out shares of McAfee. The IPO is trading now. We're back right after this. McAfee shares down six and a half. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The combined state and federal imprisonment rate has dropped to its lowest level since 1995. 419 sentence pres- sentenced prisoners per 100,000 U.S. residents in 2019. The U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics says it is the 11th straight annual decrease. Edward Snowden, seen here in a 2019 CBC interview, has been offered permanent residency by Russia, according to his lawyer. That would be a step towards Russian citizenship if Snowden wants it. He has been in that country to avoid U.S. prosecution for allegedly releasing secret NSA files in 2013, revealing U.S. surveillance of American citizens. And early this morning, a Delta jet makes an emergency landing in Minneapolis. The flight from St. Louis had 39 passengers and four crew. Luckily, everybody's okay. No word on what prompted the emergency to be declared. You're up to date, Scott. I'll send it back to you. We appreciate that, Sue. Thank you very much. Shares of Chipotle taking a hit today. That's despite an earnings beat, even with today's drop, though. That stock is still up more than 50 percent this year. Kate Rogers joins us now with Chipotle's CEO, Brian Nickel. It is a halftime exclusive. Take it away, Kate. Scott, thank you so much. And Brian, thanks for joining us. Congrats on the quarter. Yeah, thanks, Kate. Good to be here. So we have to talk about these digital growth numbers as we do every quarter. You said digital could hit two and a half billion dollars this year, more than double what you did last year. I'm curious what the company sees as the biggest digital growth driver right now and also how long you can keep up this pace. Yeah, thanks, Kate. You know, obviously we are really excited about how our digital business has performed, uh, especially during uh, the COVID pandemic. I think I mentioned in the call, our delivery business is now uh, over a billion dollars. Our order ahead business is over a billion dollars. And our total digital business as a result is well over two billion. So obviously it won't continue to grow at 200% uh, growth rate, but I definitely believe it's going to continue to be a growth engine for our company well beyond where we are today. And the biggest driver why I believe that is we've got this new format uh, called a Chipotle, where we give people more access by ordering ahead and then they're able to just pick up without getting out of their car. 
And I really do think it's the digital drive-through of the future. And that's going to be a key component to how we continue to keep people engaged and uh, driving our digital business. Not to mention, we've got 17 million people in our rewards program, and we're testing things like quesadilla as a digital-only initiative. I'm glad you brought up Chipotle. It's obviously driving a lot of business, also higher margin business. People are spending more when they order ahead and come through the Chipotle. And that's been really important during the pandemic because consumers are kind of opting in to contactless ways to get you know, their food delivered to them and, and picked up. Do you think that that trend continues after the pandemic ends and consumers continue to want to interact with the brand that way? Yeah, absolutely. I think what you're going to see is there's going to be occasions where people will want to order off-premise, pick it up in their car. There'll be occasions where they want to order ahead and just come in and grab it and go. And there's going to be occasions where people are going to want to come into our restaurant and, you know, go down the line and do the great Chipotle experience that they've already um, known and loved. So I think absolutely it's going to be a part of the puzzle. I think our company is uniquely positioned uh, to do it really well because the model that we have, right? We've got delicious ingredients done with a food with integrity ethos. And then you look at the customization and speed that we can provide it for all those access points. Um, I like where we're headed uh, and I like where consumer behaviors are headed in all these areas that I think Chipotle has a real differentiated uh, position. You did, of course, mention delivery, which is all important, not just for Chipotle, but in the space at large, but it's also expensive. I know Chipotle is testing some price hikes to see how that shakes out, potentially make it a bit more profitable. Do you have any concerns that that may turn customers off or they may turn to other ways of ordering and interacting with the brand? No, you know, what we have seen so far is we've tested uh, the delivery channel and what the right delivery fee is, what the right menu prices are. Uh, people understand that there is uh, a different pricing structure when it comes to getting access through delivery. So uh, we're going to be smart about how we price it. We want to maintain our great value proposition. And the good news is at all these spaces that we're testing, uh, we still, I think, are one of the best options for the delivery occasion. So um, early days on this, but right now it looks uh, really promising for people accepting um, the cost differential for delivery. And look, when you've got great alternatives like order ahead and pick up or come into the restaurant and grab and go, um, you know, we've also seen people being willing to flex between the different access points, depending on what their consumer needs are. Definitely. It's all about that convenience. I know Scott Wapner has a question for you, Brian. Scott? Hey, Brian. Hey, Brian. Thanks, Kate. Uh, welcome to Halftime. It's good to, good to see you. You know, we were reminded, uh, Brian, a week ago from Domino's CEO about rising commodity costs, certainly eating into some of their uh, profits in terms of higher cheese prices. I'm wondering what you're seeing, if anything, as it relates to, to higher, higher costs for you and whether you think it's temporary because of COVID or if it's something that's going to stick around for a while. Yeah, look, we've seen uh, some places uh, where commodity costs went up. You know, uh, obviously beef had a step up. Cheese obviously had a little bit of a step up. But uh, it was nothing that, um, you know, we didn't see as an issue. And we also think a lot of it is temporary. Um, you know, some of the things that we have also seen is, you know, obviously as people uh, order in bigger group sizes, uh, we're seeing more people want to uh, get burritos for off-premise occasions and uh, they're also bending more towards, I would say, some of the more comfort foods, so like the steaks and adding queso. But uh, we're all really excited about the experiences that people are getting. Uh, we see a lot of the cost is temporary. And, uh, you know, I mentioned this in our call yesterday. 
there's tailwinds right now and there'll be headwinds. And one thing I've learned over the course of time doing this job is I can plan on something unexpected happening. And the main thing we do is make sure we have plans to handle whatever unexpected cost or opportunity comes at our comes comes at our doorstep. One of my panelists has a question for you as well, Brian. Josh Brown, go ahead. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for joining us. I just want to say you have the best mobile experience of any of the other uh, competitors in your in your space. Um, it's it's really magical. It's as good as Starbucks. So you've done a great job there. I think for investors watching this right now who are looking at the valuation for Chipotle, and you're not the most expensive uh, name on, let's say, something like a price to sales, McDonald's is, but you're up there. So why would I pay six and a half times today um, Chipotle when, let's say, QSR, which is like Burger King, Tim Hortons, or some of the other competitors, Yum! Brands are more like five times sales. You have a nice premium, you've earned it, but why would I pay that today? Are you going to get that much bigger than them? Are you going to be that much more profitable? What what would be the the investment case for your shares from today's price? Yeah, uh, Josh, thanks for the about the mobile experience. I, I obviously totally agree. Look, I think to answer your question head on, it, it's really simple. It is um, we have tremendous growth in front of us. And I think we are truly differentiated. And the food that we provide is on trend with how people want to eat. And when I mean tremendous growth, um, I think our average unit volumes are going to get back to two and a half million and probably go beyond that. Our margins will be best in class with 25% plus. Uh, And then the return, whenever we build a new restaurant, is best in industry. So when you think about those financial metrics and then the opportunity of growth in front of us, we only have 2,700 restaurants. We can easily have five, 6,000 restaurants just in the United States. Um, so when you put the opportunity of building 200 plus restaurants a year, doing two and a half million plus unit volumes with margins better than 25%, um, that is just a tremendous growth opportunity with tremendous financials behind it. So. Uh, And the reason why I believe that's going to happen is because I think we've got the right digital access, we've got the right food, we've got the right culture. um, And, you know, I think in the end, uh, consumers love having that Chipotle experience. So um, we're very optimistic on the growth and uh, I'm very optimistic about capturing uh, all those financial metrics I just talked about. Brian, it's Kate here. One more question before we let you go. I would love to hear your thoughts on Gen Z. Chipotle's been marketing to them with some TikTok challenges. You had a clothing line out earlier in the year. You know, this is all kind of stuff that people talk about maybe aren't focusing on as much or taking very seriously. But you mentioned 17 million rewards members. I'm I'm guessing a lot of them have to be younger, newer customers. How important are these younger, newer customers to the brand moving ahead? Look, it's, it's really critical. You know, part of the reason why the brand is so strong and healthy is because I believe Chipotle not only participates in culture, but leads culture. And if you want to do that with young people, you've got to be in the places where young people are. Uh, you know, the snaps, the TikToks, uh, and then do it in a way that's consistent with their values. Um, because fortunately for us, this company was founded on the idea of cultivating a better world. Uh, food with integrity is the means to do that. And behind that, obviously, we believe dearly in doing the right things for farming, whether it's regenerative farming, the right thing for animals, uh, and then obviously sustainability. So those values that are very important to Chipotle match very nicely with uh, young people that are coming up and becoming new Chipotle customers. 
when they enter our rewards program, we're able to talk to them about all those unique things that we do at Chipotle. And, you know, the way I hear it played back is they feel good about eating at Chipotle. They feel good about carrying that bag. They feel good about bringing their friends to our restaurant or getting it delivered with their group of friends. So um, it's hugely important to us. We're very excited about uh, the strength that we have with youth. And, uh, you know, look, our marketing group and our company will continue to do everything we can to stay in sync with culture and really lead culture. Great. Brian Nickel, we will leave it there. Chipotle CEO, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Scott, over to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good seeing you, Kate. Yep, Kate, we appreciate it. Now, Brian Nickel, our thanks to you as well. Coming up, John's latest unusual activity trades are next. A reminder as well, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back after this. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back. Sonos is down more than 10 percent in the last three months. Options traders looking for some upside, but they're getting it today. John, that's part of your unusual activity. Indeed, Scott. And the reason uh, perhaps that they took that big hit was Apple taking them out of the stores, that and Logitech. Um, However, we see big buying, Scott, at the December 1750 strike. They bought a ton of those right out of the gate. And with the stock at 1550, that means they're looking for over $2 of upside. Second trade, Sabre, S-A-B-R. This one, they're buying the November 8 and 9 strike calls, Scott, very aggressively. I bought both Sabre calls as well as Sonos calls today. Okay, good stuff. Doc, thank you for that. More money flowing into hedge funds. We're following the money next, right here on The Half. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Looks like hedge funds are no longer bleeding money in this market. So says Leslie Picker, who's always following the money in that space for us. Hey, Les. Hey, Scott, that's right. Hedge funds raked in more capital than they lost in the third quarter. That's the first time that's happened in two and a half years. The industry saw inflows of $13 billion in the three months through September, a reversal of the outflows that took place in every quarter going back to the beginning of 2018. So what changed? Well, hedge funds on average outperformed the market during the first quarter of the year when all of the pandemic-induced volatility was unfolding. As allocators look ahead to the election and the ongoing COVID crisis, they're really turning to hedge funds to help manage risk and protect their 
downside. Uh, now, we often talk about hedge funds like they're monolithic, but they, of course, come in all sizes and styles. Not all of them are really benefiting from these inflows here. 86% of the inflows went to firms that already had more than $5 billion or more in assets, essentially helping make the biggest funds get even bigger. Macro was the most popular strategy as investors sought help navigating the political uncertainty. Quant funds were also big beneficiaries of the inflows in the quarter. Total industry assets are at an estimated $3.3 trillion now, Scott. Yeah, interesting. Leslie, thank you. You could stay stay with us if you could. Uh, Brenda, why do you think this is? Yeah, we invest in hedge funds. And I think the other thing that hasn't been mentioned yet is that because interest rates are so incredibly low, everyone's reevaluating their allocation to bonds and saying, what else can I invest in that may not have all the risk of the equity market, but that can still deliver a return that's going to outpace inflation? Yeah. Steve Weiss, you're our resident hedge fund expert. What do you make of this story? Well, I I think that they're worried about the increasing volatility. They're thinking that investing index funds can't go on forever because markets won't go up forever in the short term. They've got to get performance where they can. So a lot of institutions are performing below their bogeys because of where interest rates are, where yields are. So they're going to hedge funds hoping for some juice. Yeah. So it's both battle, hoping to manage the risk as well as get some outperformance. Yeah. We'll, we'll see Le- if it happens. And Leslie, as you said, the big getting even bigger. That's right. Uh, and you often see this where the markets go down. Oftentimes, hedge funds go down, too, on average, uh, but they don't go down as much. So people who are looking to preserve their wealth in this current environment, oftentimes as a lagging indicator, people follow performance. They'll turn in hedge funds after you see some volatility like we saw earlier this year. I right, appreciate that. Leslie Picker, thank you. More ahead on the half. And as we go to break, take a look at some of the stocks hitting new highs today. Align Technology, Pool Corp, Danaher. We're back in just two minutes. We're back with the futures outlook. Gold under some pressure today after rallying into the week. Let's bring in Bill Baruch of Blue Line Futures for that trade. Hey, Bill. How you doing? Uh, Gold's in a very tradable range right now, and it's lower today. The U.S. dollar stronger. The Chinese yuan is lower. No progress in in Washington on stimulus, but it failed at major three-star resistance. That's what I characterize those levels as. 1933, 1937 was that yesterday. That was the sell. We're not quite at a near-term buy for a swing trade. We're right in the middle of that range. So I'm looking longer term here with this trade today. Uh, this The exchange gives you a number of contract sizes to play with. I'm looking at the 10-ounce micro gold futures. I'm looking at buying four of those. I want to buy two right here, 1900 I want to buy two more at 1855 Again, I'm looking longer term. It gives you an average price, 1877 and a half. Risk is stopped down to 1780 That's about $3,900 risk. My target, I'm a long-term believer in gold, $2,300 in the first quarter of next year, and that gives you a gain of 16900 That's how I'm looking at playing as an investment here in gold, and I would do that per $25,000. All right, good stuff. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Bill Baruch. Final Trades coming up next. Quick with Final Trades, Brenda, you're first. AT&T, strong quarter, 7% dividend yield. Yeah, stock up after a streak of being down. Steve Weiss. Jumaya, J-M-I-A, reporting early November. Yeah, been ripping too. All right, John Ajarian. Chemocentric, CCXI, Biopharma, Scott. Okay, and Josh Brown. What's some uh, General Motors? I think the stock breaks out. Oh, interesting. All right, that's a nice day for GM. Thank you, everybody.
does it for us, the exchanges now. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.